Hello and welcome to a new semester of the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by David Farenthold, reporter at the Washington Post, who discussed his investigations of President Trump's charitable giving during the 2016 campaign season and provided insight about how to cover the president and his administration. Moderating the event is Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Centre. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment has arrived. Welcome to our inaugural speaker of the spring semester for the Shorenstein Center. A lot of alliteration there. My name is Nick O'Mealy. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center. Without further ado, our guest today, we're delighted to have him to kick off the spring. David Farenholt is a reporter for the Washington Post covering politics. He's been at the Post since 2000 and previously covered Congress the federal bureaucracy, the environment, and the D.C. police. He has recently won a claim for his coverage of the 2016 United States presidential election, (coughs) particularly his investigations of Donald J. Trump's charitable foundation and philanthropic giving, for which he received the post-inaugural Ben Bradley Prize. He is a graduate of this fine institution, Harvard (laughs) College, not Harvard Kennedy School. (laughs) But both of them are fine institutions. (laughs) So... Wow. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you. So I'd be curious about, just to kick us off, for you to just tell us a little bit of the story on how you ended up becoming an investigative reporter. And then what, when did you catch the scent of something going on that turned into this big story? Uh, well, so I start. I got into this story as a political reporter. I've done a lot of different things in, at the Post, as you said. Um, I had done a lot of investigative reporting in 2013 and 2014 about government waste. But then in 2015, I started covering the pres- like basically everybody else. I started covering the presidential campaign. Uh, but I did it starting out sort of as a generalist. You know, spend two weeks learning about Marco Rubio, write a story about Marco Rubio, then forget about Marco Rubio, move to Ted Cruz, write about Ted Cruz for two weeks, forget forget about him. Um, and I spent a lot of time that year um, trying to sort of stay away from the pack, follow candidates that had less, you know, where you could meet them more. But that meant that I ended up writing a lot about losers, basically. I wrote about George Pataki, uh, Rick Santorum. And one of the saddest moments, I toured a Chipotle in New Hampshire with George Pataki, who confidently shook everyone's hand and then left, and no one had any idea who they just met. <laughs> Many people thought he was the man who discovered Chipotle for the first time. <laughs> so... So I ended up, all my people that I covered all dropped out. And so then I ended up without anybody to cover day to day. And they said, okay, go to Iowa on the caucus day um, to cover this amazing idea that Donald Trump, a guy who'd been divorced twice, even on the cover of Playboy, that he was going to win this famously conservative Iowa caucuses. I followed Trump around that day. He ended up losing, but I followed him all around that day. And I saw him do something really interesting. In Waterloo, Iowa, um, a town where he was holding a rally, he stopped this political rally and had someone come up on stage, a local veterans group, and he gave them a big check, the kind of check you see like at golf tournaments or something. It said $100,000. The top of it said Donald J. Trump Foundation, and the bottom said Make America Great Again. Now, I don't know anything about, or at that point, I knew nothing about charity <coughs> reporting, but I knew that was basically illegal. You can't use your charity to boost your presidential campaign. By law, they have to be separate. So I was interested in that, I mean, and interested in the question of whether he'd done something illegal. But then I noticed something else. After him, he'd done that a few times, at b- giving out big checks to different groups at these rallies, he stopped. 
And we knew that he said he was going to give away $6 million. He'd raised $6 million at this fundraiser for veterans he held when he canceled the, I mean, he backed out of a Fox-run Republican debate. But after he stopped, he stopped giving away the big checks after he'd only accounted for about a million of the $6 million. So I got back after the New Hampshire primary, and I said, well, let's find out where the rest of the money went. And I'll just call the Trump people and they'll tell me. Because, of course, you wouldn't raise $6 million for veterans in the middle of a Republican presidential campaign and then stiff veterans. You just wouldn't do that. So I started calling the Trump people and got no answers. I started calling the charities that had been identified as the recipients of these. You know, it was a 22 people, 22 groups on the list. Did they know where the money was? No. And that launched me in the beginning of all this into like a three-month effort to find out just that simple question, what happened to the $6 million that Trump had given to had raised for veterans, and did he break the law when he used his charity to help his political campaign? And so that, that, first, that, was, the, that was the first crack at this, and the story widened from there, basically. What, what surprised you most about reporting that story out? The, well, the original veteran story, I was so surprised that I couldn't get answers from anybody. Um, but there was a there, – there, the, at the end of May, something really interesting happened. Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's campaign manager then, called me and said, okay, I can tell you about one part of the $6 million. Trump had said, I'm going to give $1 million out of my own pocket. That was one of the $6 million. He's gonna, but I couldn't figure out – even if he'd given away that $1 million, it was supposed to be a personal gift. Lewandowski calls me and he says, yes. Four months later, Mr. Trump has given that $1 million away, but I can't tell you who he gave it to or when or in what amount. It's all a secret but just know that he gave the million dollars away. <laughs> so now I'm stuck. I don't want to take that. I don't want to take their word for it, right? This is a really important campaign promise. You know, it shows you something about his character, his interest in veterans. Does he keep a promise? So I'm trying to figure out how do I prove him right? Let me just try to find some evidence Trump is right. How do you do that? There's a million veterans, <laughs> veteran charities in America. I would never be able to call them all. So I started looking on Twitter, and I started... The questions that I would have sent by email or asked over the phone to veterans groups, I started asking on Twitter in a public forum. You know, going to like the disabled American veterans, the veterans of foreign wars, the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America, the big veterans groups, querying them in public so that other reporters could see, other veterans could see, and so Trump himself, who I tagged in the tweets, could see that I was checking this promise. I spent a day tweeting at all these veterans groups, veterans magazines, veterans advocates, hoping that somewhere out there I would, I might, somebody would see that I was searching for this. And even if I hadn't asked them directly, they would say, oh yeah, Trump gave me $100,000. And then, okay, I would have found the tip of the iceberg. I would know this million dollars really was given out or have an indication that it was. I spent the day searching and I found nothing, absolutely nothing. And I felt like a 39-year-old a old person that I am. I, I was like, the Twitter is useless. I spent all day, I learned nothing. And I'm never doing this again. But it turned out that Trump had seen. He'd, so I, I found nothing, and that's because there was nothing. Uh, Trump had given no money out. The million dollars that Lewandowski said he'd given was all still in Trump's pocket. Um, it was a lie, basically. And so Trump saw me looking on Twitter, and then that night, after I did my, my, my Twitter search, then he gave the million dollars. He gave it all away in one fell swoop to a group that he knew well. Um, so Trump called me the next day to say that he'd done this, and I said, um, well, why did you... Why did you wait four months? You know, you said you gave this million dollars away four months ago. Why did you give this? Why did you wait four months? He said, "Oh, I had to vet the group that I gave the money to." And I, it just happened that I, I had done enough research to know this. I said, "Well, this group that you gave it to, they gave you the Lifetime Achievement Award from their group last year to Black Tie Gala at the Waldorf Astoria. You spent a whole evening with them at a gala in your honor. You needed to vet them even after that." He said, "Oh, yeah, that's true." And I said, um, "Did you just give this money away now because I was asking about it?" 
and he's, he's, he called me a nasty guy. That was, my, that was his response. Um, so after that experience, Trump then holds a big press conference in Trump Tower where he very angrily des- describes what he's done with the rest of the money. A bunch of the other $5 million people had given him to give away. And he finally gave the rest of it away, very angrily describing how they were so mad the media made him do this, um, made him follow through on his promise. And um, after that, we said, wow, okay, let's go back and look at all the promises Trump has made over the years before he was president, a presidential candidate. Was he making good on those promises? Basically, under so much scrutiny, as a, you know, the, the microscope of a presidential campaign, he was willing to take the risk that he could stiff these veterans groups and nobody would find out. What's he been doing all these past years when nobody was looking? And that's what we sort of expanded the search. What, uh, what would you say... In your experience, kind of tracking all this down, you know, obviously it's a very tumultuous time for media. The president yesterday, you know, really went on the attack, uh, uh, suggesting that the media has not done their job covering terrorist attacks. What what lessons would you take away from your experience on the campaign trail that might be useful in covering the president in this administration? Uh, I think there's a couple of things. The first one is that. Um, before, I think there had been an assumption in political journalism that we could all sort of be generalists. Uh, that if the you know that we were accustomed to a, a campaign and a presidency where the, you would only talk about one thing at a time. The president would say, "This is going to be education week. We're going to talk about education all week, and I have an edu- education bill that I want to pass." Or think of healthcare in two thousand and nine. We're going to talk about only healthcare for months and months and months and months. And so, say you're a generalist, you, that's okay because two things: one, you presume that if the president says something. It's right, it's factually accurate, and it's attached to a broader policy. There's meaning in it. It's attached to a broader policy idea. And two, that the issues will stay front and center for long enough that although you start as a generalist, you'll become an expert in whatever that thing is. And so you'll be expert by the end of it. Now we confronted an administration where Trump could say, could tweet anything about anything at any time, and often it's wrong. Often what he says is wrong. And so I think the way to react to that is to have to become an expert in something, for reporters to become subject matter experts, so that we don't have a situation where Trump says, three million people voted illegally, and then the first version of that story that goes on our website is written by a generalist who says, the president said three million people voted illegally. You need to have somebody who knows the subject enough that when that first first cut on your website is, the president said three million people voted illegally, that's wrong. You know, the reporter comes to it with enough subject matter expertise to put it in context and to say it's incorrect if it's incorrect. Um, that's what I've been preaching. Like that was so advantageous for me last year to have to be to know one thing. Like I knew Trump's charity really, really well. And if occasionally Trump would talk about it or other people would talk about it, I knew enough to put what they said in context. Um, and I think that's what we're going to have to do to react to somebody who will like at five in the morning tweet about, you know, I'm going to send the feds into Chicago or I'm going to, um, you know, complain about the cost of Air Force One or something. People have to know these things well enough that the reporter can write, you know, the expert can write about it right away. So you've talked uh, a little bit here about your use of Twitter, and I just want to ask you to, I know it's been written about and talked about before, but your methodology is a really unusual combination of analog and, <clears throat> analog and digital, we could say. Your kind of legal pad, long form notes, and uh, some crowdsourcing. So I'm kind of curious about the, you know, the role of social media in reporting in your experience and kind of what lessons can be drawn from that? Well, uh, for me, what I was really, I did not, I went into this sort of expecting that, that social media was a way for me to tell people what I'm doing, not for a way for people to talk to me. Like, you know, I didn't see it as a way for people to help with the reporting. And that sort of happened kind of by accident that I discovered that. Um, but 
for me, it was, it's really important to build trust in readers to show them what you're doing. And here's what I'm trying to do, and here's what I'm, here's what I'm trying to figure out. And I, was always, I always, with the, the charity stuff, I never said, I'm trying to prove Donald Trump wrong. I said, I'm trying to prove Donald Trump right. He said he, did these, he gave this money to charity, helped me find evidence, that's true. Um, and to show people that I'm not sort of starting out trying to prove a negative about him, and to invite people's comments and people's ideas. The thing about it as a reporter that I discovered was, there's certain problems in reporting, especially with Trump, where he won't. He, so much of what he does is not transparent about in, in, about his charity, about his business, about the operations of his administration. So much of what he does is not transparent. There are questions you're trying to answer, and there's not like a really obvious way of answering them. Like I'll give you an example. Well, the things where you you don't even really know what the first step would be to getting that answer. One great example from the charity coverage. In 1989. I got this tax return from the Trump's foundation in 1989. He gave $7 to the Boy Scouts, okay? The, the Donald Trump Foundation <laughs> gave a donation of $7 to the Boy Scouts. It's the smallest donation in the history of the Trump Foundation. That's weird, right? And I'd love to know the story behind it. And, but the Boy Scouts weren't talking to me. Trump wasn't talking to me. It was so long ago, it's hard to... I was like, I, I don't even know where to look to find the answer Talk to this more? question. Right, yeah. So, so I just was like, well, screw it. I'm just going to put... I'm going to post just this weird thing on Twitter and let people get a laugh out of it, right? If there's nothing else, I just let people see it and be interested in it. So I, I did that. I got in the Uber to go home to my house, which is like a 30-minute drive. And I'm in the Uber watching my phone, and it's like one of those scenes in the movies where the supercomputer is like, you know, solving the problem. You know, where you're, like, you're watching like some diffuse thing calculating something in real time. So people take that, and first they think of the popcorn. So the Boy Scouts have never had a good answer to the Girl Scouts uh, cookies. So uh, I think when I was a Boy Scout, I sold like fertilizer or something. But they, <laughs> they sold, at, at, in 1989, they were selling uh, popcorn. And so people remember that. There's people out there that remember that, which I didn't remember. And then they start tweeting at the popcorn company, which still exists and has a Twitter handle. How much did a tin of popcorn cost in 1989? Okay, no, the popcorn people get back to us. No, pop, tin of popcorn cost $5 in 1989. Okay, throw that out. Start again. And you see people, and they're, they're like going through, um, you know, Google has like these like archives of old newspapers where you can see the ads in addition to the, the text of the stories. And they're finding, and so then they, people zero in on um, the entrance fee, the registration fee. In 1989, it cost $7 to register a new boy with the Boy Scouts. That was the year Donald Trump Jr. turned 11, the right age to join the Boy Scouts. So I don't know for sure that that's what he did because I don't have the receipt, but like, that appears to be what he used. To eat. A man who was a multi-multi-millionaire used his charity to buy his son's entrance fee into the Boy Scouts. So um, that's fascinating. And, but I, I never would have even known how to take the first step um, without you don't realize how many how much experience and context other people bring to the same problems that you don't know. So as as a very kind of visible journalist on social media investigating Trump's charitable contributions, did you experience harassment or what, what was? How would you describe the full spectrum of that experience? Uh, it was not as bad as you would think. Oh, first of all, and I first I think a lot of people abused the Texas congressman instead of me believing that he was me because uh, his, his name is easier to spell. Um, but um, I did get, like, there was a, one guy who, who um, my wife works for the World Resources Institute, this uh, environmental think tank, and um, they once got a donation from the Clinton Foundation, and the former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, is on their board. So there was one uh, right-wing troll site that, that put up a story saying, Ferenthal's wife works for the president of Mexico and gets money from the Clinton Foundation. Um, which is, like, that's fine. If that's the best they can dig up on me, that's fine. Um, and there was some harassment on Twitter. Um, I got one uh, death threat at the office after appearing on Fox. 
um, which the post took very seriously. And we did a lot of security precautions in my house because of that. Um, in general, though, the like tone, the like vitriol that I got on social media and on email, it, the whole time covering Trump was not anywhere near what I got from Bernie Sanders' uh, fans after I wrote a couple of stories about Bernie back in 2015. Huh. And I, 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 that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder if part of that is your gender, actually. I wonder if it would have been more challenging for um, a woman reporter. I know female reporters, especially ones that were on television, got much, much worse than I ever did. Yeah. What, um, how, why did you become a journalist? Uh, I started out <laughs> at Harvard, actually. I thought that I was going to um, be at the Lampoon. And I went to the Lampoon's first, the comp meeting, and uh, we went in. It was all dark. The Lampoon, people who were already in the Lampoon sat up in the alcove smoking cigars. So all you could see was the light of their cigars. And they handed out this sheet of jokes that were not funny, like kinds of jokes they had determined were not funny. And a lot of it was topical humor because they came out so infrequently that like a joke from today wouldn't make any sense two years from now when the magazine came out. And I looked at it and I was like, Look, this is all, these are all the jokes that I have. I have no other jokes. <laughs> so then I went to the Crimson uh, and it was light. People were, everyone was friendly. And, and like the first day, um, the, the first day I went into the Crimson, got an assignment to cover like a gas leak on um, Holyoke, or on Mount Auburn Street. And like nothing happened, nothing blew up, but I wrote a story, got in the paper the next day. And I became so addicted to that, like the idea that you could do something today and see it tomorrow. And the ability to sort of follow your curiosity, the things that if you're interested in something, this is a license to go find out about it and tell the story of it. Um, so I started writing for the Crimson as a freshman and then got summer internships working for newspapers. I actually thought that I was, after I graduated and went to the Post, I thought that I might go back to law school, but really never, you know, having done newspapers, never had like that pang of like, oh, I should go back and be a lawyer. I, I loved it too much. And also it ruined my attention span. Like my attention span is way too short to be a lawyer. <laughs> Who were some of your, uh, who, who, who inspires you as a writer or a journalist, has kind of helped you, help you hone your craft? Um, it's a lot of people, but uh, I, the person that I most, um, I read most and most admire is Michael Lewis, the Moneyball, person who wrote Moneyball, Liar's Poker, other books like that, just because he has such a good, I think one of the key things that we do is explain complicated things to people. It's one thing I really like about journalism, and I really like the way that he, manages to take things that are really complicated and make them very conversational and interesting and use characters to tell those stories. Um, that's been somebody I really like. I read a lot of magazine journalism, not that I write that long, uh, but people like Chris Jones from Esquire who tell really amazing stories just to get like a sense of other ways you could tell stories that seem, that seem complicated. Um, by the way, if I could put in a, pl a plug for a book that I read and really liked, there's a book called, book called 50 Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark, who was at Pointer Institute in Florida. It just tells you like the basics of being a journalist. And it's, it's sort of with me like, if you learn music, sight reading, and then someone, or you learn music by ear, and then someone taught you how to sight read, and someone taught you about the notes, and you were like, oh, well, there's names for these things that I like, and there's a science of it, and I could put names to these techniques that I used. That was really helpful too. Fantastic. I'm going to ask one more question and we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So get your questions ready. So I'm curious about what it was like in the Washington Post newsroom when you were covering Trump. What kind of discussions were they having about ways to cover him? What was your, you know, this, this was easily the most unusual presidential campaign for the news media in 50 years. Yes. And what, what, what kinds of issues did the newsroom struggle with? And did any of them revolve around your reporting? I was kind of 
for better or worse, sort of off to the side. I mean, there were a lot of people covering the sort of day-to-day coverage of Trump, and there were a lot of people investigating Trump. We wrote a whole book about Trump. I My thing was sort of separate. Like, I worked with a few other people, but it was mostly just me, um, which was great. But um, I think that the, the main, like, looking back, um, the main thing that we did not really understand or didn't really cover that well, and I think we were not sort of aware of it at the time, was um, polling. Like, and I, by that I mean to know who was really ahead and who was, you know, how those things were changing. I think we now have, you know, after 08 and 12, we came to a situation where we, you know, Nate Silver, before the idea of who was going to win the presidential race was unknowable, right? So we treated it as like, we'll deal with things we can see, like momentum, you know, stagecraft, you know, confidence on the stump, debates, things that were sort of anecdotal and we would try to add them up. Then Nate Silver comes along and it's like, holy crap, we can tell who's winning. Every day I can tell who's winning. Um, and this time around, we tried to sort of, I at least, put a lot of faith in those models. And I think I at least, and a lot of other people at the paper, never understood how those models worked or what their problems were or what they might be trying to tell us. Like, it, we, we like focused on the big number without really ever getting like what the mechanics were of that. And I think that if I, if I could go back, it's a little different question than the question you asked, but if I could go back and change anything about what we were doing, it would be that somebody who was, we have a polling unit who does the polls, but there's nobody really on the, on the news side who writes the stories who could be like, yeah, it says Hillary Clinton has a 75% chance of winning, but look, I can look at these polls that they're including and I can tell they're crappy, so we, we shouldn't put as much faith in that. To have some way of questioning that thing instead of just accepting it as like the voice of God. Great. So do we have questions from the audience? Introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Jasper Frank, and I'm a second-year student at the Kennedy School. Um, I just had a question about how the way that this administration responds to coverage might change the way that you think about which stories to write and how you write them, um, especially given uh, what your coverage of the charity issue led to. Uh, it is a really, the way they respond to coverage, looking at this administration just in its first couple of weeks, we have never seen, I think, in recent years, an administration for whom the media occupied more of their time and their focus. Like, so much of what they do is focused on how they are portrayed in the media and trying to change that, rather to the exclusion of doing things, of policy. Um, you know, they are really, really obsessed with how Trump is portrayed, particularly on television, and how they and how they all are portrayed, Bannon, Priebus, all those guys. Um, so that's interesting in a, in a lot of ways. I think it, it changes more and more the habits of TV people rather than, than us. Like, if you watch Morning Joe now, Morning Joe is like, we're talking to you, Donald Trump, and if other people are listening, fine, but like, this is a show for one guy, you know? Um, you know, and, it, and it's so, and you know, like, but that makes TV very different. But for us, I think that, talking about his response, the, the key thing I think we're seeing is like, in the beginning, when he was president, he would tweet about something and sound like he was making some sort of policy threat or policy decision, like, I mean, he was like, we'll send the feds into Chicago after there was something you saw on TV about violence in Chicago. Um, Three million people voted illegally. You know, we're going to have an investigation. Those were covered a lot, rightly, because it sounded like the president was saying what he was going to do. In the, in the past, if an, another president said something like that, it would be attached to a plan, you know, or it would be then coupled with a plan that people would go and do to carry it out. And if it turns out that Trump is just yelling at the television and not actually talking about something that he's going to do, I think our coverage of those things will, will change. Like, it, 
Trump will tweet something, but if it turns out that what Trump tweets is a bad predictor of what he'll actually do as president, then I think we give those things less coverage. I think we focus more on what he's actually doing. Um, and it won't be something like where his tweet can control a whole news cycle because it'll just be like, well, in the past he's talked about this sort of stuff and nothing ever comes of it. Um, so he obviously is very, very sensitive to what, how he's portrayed and he's attacked the media a lot, mostly the New York Times rather than us. But um, it's interesting to see that decoupled from action is kind of like, it seems like it's kind of, he's, he's lost the effectiveness, right? Like how many times do you say the failing New York Times is so bad and then the New York Times gains subscribers and people just get used to it? Like it, like it just seems like he's wearing that out. And I don't know what, I don't know what he does next. I don't know if he reacts to that or not. Um, or if he just keeps doing this and not recognizing how it's not really having an effect anymore. But that's to me the interesting question for us is, if, how do we cover Trump's tweets if there's nothing behind them? Hey, I'm Lindsay, and I'm one of the fellows of the Shorenstein Center, so I get to hang out with these people, mm -hmm. um, which is amazing. But how, how has being a journalist changed and the newsroom changed since um, Jeff Bezos uh, bought the Post? Because I was there on election night. It was a dark, it was a dark night there at the Post. Um, but we walked in like a typical DC party for an election watch would just be a lot of shrimp and drinks and stuff. And there were like monitors everywhere and they were trying to make it more relevant and digital. Like, have you seen any of that? Um, what's changed in the newsroom for you as a journalist? It's wonderful. I mean, it, it, it was, at first we were like, well, if nothing else, we have a guy who can afford to lose money, you know, at the scale we lose money. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but that, it's not that anymore. I mean, it's, he, he is. Do you get free prime? Right. Uh, <laughs> We do have, as a father of young children, I have prime. It would have been anyway. But, um, but it's interesting, the, the way that he has thought about our ambitions, right? There's two, in two dimensions. One, on the business side, I think before, there was just never a sense, at least from looking from the other side, that we had a plan. You know, we were just like, we, can, we know how to sell print ads to department stores, and we're going to try to just keep doing that as long as we can and maybe expand a little bit into digital. But there was never a sense of like, hope that digital would be enough or subscriptions would be enough. Like it was always like, well, we're just going to, you know, try to glide as, down as slowly as we can. Um, and that has changed. The amount of effort they've put into people, into people subscribing I and mean, recognizing that the biggest thing is for you to give us your credit card number and sign up, even if it's for just for a dollar the first year. Once you take your wallet out of your purse or out of your pocket and type your credit card number in, that's a huge hurdle. And after that, things are easier for us to keep you as a customer. Um, they've done so much thinking about like, you know, it was analytics of like, okay, what at what point do people put their credit card number in? Is it if they read three sports stories, then they're most likely, well, then we know if you read three sports stories in a row, that's when we're going to give you a special offer. So, like, that's great. People are thinking about that. We're competing for uh, watch ads, which apparently is like that is the gold standard. You notice the New York Times produces a ton of watch centered journalism. Like, that's why <laughs> it, it, they have magazines about watches. Like, who cares about it? Like, all watches do the same thing, basically, but that's why there's so much money in that. Um, but uh, on the on the on the content side, he has Bezos has these ambitions for us that I think we would have been afraid to say out loud about ourselves before he came. Um, for instance, uh, you know we before had sort of shrunk to being the mantra was foreign about Washington. We're going to cover <laughs> what local things in Washington, and we're going to cover official Washington for an audience around the world. But we're not going to cover, you know, if there's a tornado in Alabama or if there's a, you know, if there's something that happens in the, you know, Oregon State Legislature, we're not going to cover that. Now, that's gone. And, and the idea is, you know, if you are a newspaper reader who reads English, we want to compete for your business. And so that means both expanding our coverage of politics and other things we're known for, but also, like, we have an overnight desk 
that just comes in and writes like what interesting stuff from around the web, around the world, right? The things you can do from your desk. And so, you know, you could pejoratively call it clickbait, but it's stuff people want to read. If it's true, people want to read it. We want to capture those eyeballs and we want people to then go on to the other stuff we cover. So we have a lot of people who, you know, to make sure that's happening in the middle of the night. So if you're reading us in Ireland or in India or whatever, like there's new content for you that you might find interesting. Um, so that sort of ambition to be everywhere and to be everybody's first news source is amazing. And to have people put resources behind it is, is great too. So uh, it's, I did not even realize how much of a change it was going to be, and it's been amazing. Hi, thanks so much for being here. My name is Andrew Levine. I'm a second-year Master of Public Policy student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I really loved following your work over the summer, of just watching the yellow legal pad fill up with entries and findings or lack thereof. Uh, but I want to hear a little bit more about that process and what maybe was surprising to you, what was difficult about it, and in the end, what you learned. Um, well, so just to describe a little bit what he's talking about, after the veterans controversy, after we figured out that Trump had sort of delayed giving the money to veterans, we started trying to check all these other promises he's made to people over the years to give to charity. Many, many times over his career, he would say, I'm going to give the proceeds of this new university, this book, this board game, you know, these ventures to charity. But he would never say to X charity, he would say to charity generally. And we were trying to figure out, okay, well, had he actually given any of that money away? And so some people were no help. So I started making a list of what I thought were the charities most likely to have gotten, again, trying to prove Trump right, most likely to have gotten money from Trump. This was charities he'd given money to from the Trump Foundation, which is other people's money he gives out, people he talked about on Twitter, galas he'd gone to, that sort of thing. And after I got to 100 and I hadn't really found any evidence of him giving money out of the, what I thought were the most likely places he'd given it, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, again, open it up to people. And so I wrote it out on a legal pad, took a picture of it, posted that on Twitter for a couple of reasons. One, I thought this was going to go on for a long time, and I wanted to give people who would somehow happen on one of the stories like a visual sign that there was something bigger this was part of. You know, so like if you happen on, you know, one of these one-off stories that's part of this, you can see the legal pad and go, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. And then you can go back and remember that there's a bigger part of this, you know, there's a bigger story that this is all a piece of. And also because I wanted to illustrate basically futility. I want to show people how hard I'm trying to prove Trump right that, and that basically I can't. And so you can get a lot more information into a picture if you use you know, color-coded pens and stuff than you can into a tweet. Um, and I also am because I want to invite people's suggestions about places I ought to call. Um, so I started doing that. And the thing that surprised me uh, that A, was how much people really got into it and were interested in it. And, and B, because the, the post social media people had mocked me for using a uh, legal pad and paper. It was so old-fashioned the first day. Uh, and, now, and also because um, along the way, like doing that, make, doing that pad meant that I had to call. I had to keep calling all those charities. I had something to do every day. And it turned out that like, there were things that I didn't even know I was looking for that I found because I was doing that. To give an example, the Trump Foundation, which was his, this charity that he started in the 80s, he stopped giving it any money of his own in 2008, and other people gave money in. He kept giving it out. So because that's you have to, the chose charities have to list on their tax returns the, the places they gave their money to. Well, now I had a, I had a list of charities he'd given other people's money to, and I thought of that first as like, well, this is just a roadmap for me. I'm really trying to find money out of his own pocket, but this is an, like maybe if he gave other people's money, he'd give his own money. So I'm gonna use that as a road, roadmap to try to find real, you know personal donations. It turned out that the Trump Foundation was breaking the law in a variety of ways, and I didn't know that until I made those phone calls. So the, maybe the first example was um, 
Tim Tebow. You guys, many of you know who Tim Tebow is. He's a not very good football player. Uh, so I called this <coughs> the charity, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, which is a breast cancer charity. Trump had given them $12,000 from the Trump Foundation. And I asked, okay, has he ever given you money from his own pocket? No. And they said, well, do you want to know why he gave us $12,000 from the Trump Foundation? Sure. He had gone to a, ch a charity auction in 2012. Uh, at the time, and Tebow had actually played pretty well for the Broncos, mostly carried by his defense, but he had had a pretty successful <laughs> run. And, and he, uh, that night, so Trump goes to a gala in, at his, his club in Florida, in Mar-a-Lago, and that night, Tebow is playing the Patriots, and the Patriots are destroying Tebow. This is the, effectively the end of Tebow's career. That night, Trump paid $12,000 for an autographed Tim Tebow helmet. Um, which is like, it now costs like $200. Uh, and, he, and he'd used his charity's money to pay for it. That was the key. He'd used his charity's money to buy himself a trophy, like a, a piece of sports memorabilia. And that was important for me to know because then I started, I was like, well, that sounds funny. And I started calling lawyers and, and realized, oh, wait, there's a law about this called self-dealing. You can't, if you are the leader of a charity, you can't use your charity's money to buy stuff for yourself. It sounds obvious, but I didn't, I didn't recognize that. Was, I think Trump did not know that was the rule. Um, <laughs> And so once I learned that, oh wow, okay, now I see other Trump Foundation donations in a new light. And I had gone back to something that I had found out months before and didn't realize that I had, or didn't realize the import of, which was he had once, when one of his businesses was involved in a lawsuit, offered to settle the lawsuit with this the town of Palm Beach by his business making a donation to charity. And in fact, the Trump Foundation had made the charity the donation instead. For, it was like $100,000, $100, I think. That is illegal on a much bigger scale. And so the Tim Tebow helmet was like, oh, that's interesting. And it was a funny story because he was buying, he was like buying at the absolute highest value of a Tim Tebow helmet, which had crashed like that later that night. But um, it taught me something about charities law that I didn't know. And that opened a whole other avenue of reporting on the, on the Trump Foundation, which was times that he had used it to benefit himself. And there actually turned out to be a number of those times. But I didn't know I was looking for that until I sort of stumbled on it. Uh, so I'm Adam Burinsky, I'm a political science professor here for the year. Uh, I wanted to go back to something you were talking about before. So uh, I studied misinformation and, you know, tries, like, uh, that's the jackpot there. And I talk to reporters sometimes about the academic work I do. And for me, we're in a whole new world. That, you know, I never thought we'd be in a world where some, a politician would say something that is not just false, but that you can roll tape to demonstrate falseness, past positions. And for me, you know, used to sort of correcting misinformation bit by bit, um, it's a whole new world for me academically. Um, so I'm wondering as a reporter, I mean, I'm sure that that's times 10 for, for you, and just wondering, you know, in a similar way you talked about how, you, how, how Trump's relationship with the media has changed what you do, I guess how has his relationship with the objective truth changed how, how you do your job? Um, well, in a, in a couple of ways. One, as I said earlier, like you have to have experts who know the know the falsehood when they see it, and so the first version of the story doesn't repeat the falsehood without correcting it. Um, the other thing is, um, uh, if Trump is going to say things that are not true on Twitter, like the people who are on Twitter are basically political journalists and like ten other people, and so <laughs> he depends on us to get. To, he uses Twitter as a way of like reaching us, and then we amplify it by getting the message out. And um, I was thinking yesterday, for instance, so he, yesterday he said this thing at, at CENTCOM in Florida where he said, you know, there's been tons of, of, of terrorist attacks out there that the media won't report because they have their reasons. And then, he, then his, later on his staff put out this ridiculous list 
where like a lot of things were misspelled and everything and facts were wrong. But it was like a list of terrorist attacks they say were undercovered when all of them had been, you know, it included like the Paris attacks from last fall or fall 2015, like giant world shaking events that like, yes, they had been covered. And so then the question is like, okay, what do you do with that now? So a lot of people, uh, journalists yesterday, spent a lot of time, you know, tweeting that, talking about it, debunking it, talking about all these, you know, showing again and again, no, we really did this. And I wonder if the answer is like, oh, okay, well, this is bullshit, you know, and let's move on. You know, like if, if, if Trump says something and then they, when they provide the proof, it turns out to not to be proof, like, do you spend the next, rest of the day talking about it or do you just ignore it and, and not like spend the rest of the day amplifying their message even to debunk it? Um, so that's not a, it's a question above my level of authority at the Post, but I wonder if, you know, if he's, if he's really relying on us to be the carriers of this bad information, if, if we're serving the truth properly by continuing to republish it, even in the process of debunking it. Like the thing about the Bowling Green massacre that Kellyanne Conway said the other day, it's important to call out Kellyanne Conway, as people have, for saying that again and again, and the first time she says it to explain what, you know, why she's wrong, that there was no Bowling Green massacre, what she was talking about. But I've seen people continue to talk about the Bowling Green massacre on Twitter and other places, and I, I wonder if that is, is really that helpful. If, it, if people hear, only hear you for the first time talking about it now and they don't realize the history behind it, if you're actually just spreading misinformation rather than trying to debunk it. So, you know, there's some point where we have to realize, like, okay, well, if that's wrong, let's not repeat it, you know, because we're only helping it reach more people if, if we repeat it. Hi, sir. Uh, my name is Elam Avakami. I'm a first-year master's in public policy student. Uh, I should start by saying I've been here for close to a year now, and I've seen a lot of posters for a lot of talks uh, with cool and important people. I'm kind of used to it by now, but uh, your poster was one that made me go. No, Thank you. <laughs> my wife will be glad to hear that she made me take that picture because she hated the picture the post has of me now, so she'll be so glad to hear that it's up and inspiring people. Today is one of those This is Harvard moments. Yeah. Um, I have a question about, so uh, one of the experiences that I had in the first few days of this presidency was that there was just, it felt like there was just so much <coughs> happening, right? Like, there's like this blitz of like things that are going on. Yeah. Uh, and as a consumer of like news media and someone trying to like stay abreast of politics, um, it like becomes hard to figure out what is the important thing, which thing is like, oh, Donald, uh, President Trump said something that he probably should have said, and uh, versus like the thing that is uh, maybe a threat to democracy. Um, so uh, how do you or the paper go about thinking about like, how to filter through the mess of things that are happening and which things to attach like warning lights to so that we don't all get alarm fatigue from, you know. Yes, that's totally, I mean, I, I think um, it's a real question. And I think that we, we, we I'm not, I don't think we've really figured it out yet, just because, it's, especially in the first week, we hadn't figured it out um, because we're still trying to figure out which, what are the things he says have actions attached to them. And that even extends to executive orders, right? A lot of the executive orders he signed turned out to be kind of like press releases. You know, they didn't actually have like a concrete, the immigration one certainly did, but there were other ones on like rolling back regulations, on Obamacare, on the wall, that were like just a statement of what he intends to do rather than a statement of anything he is doing. Um, and I think that we are trying to get better at understanding like what's actually happening on the ground and, and to also realize that this is again a lesson people have to learn that what they intend to do may not be what they actually end up doing. So even if you divine the intention of the Trump administration, that like in the immigration ban, right, they shot themselves in the foot like 12 different ways. Like how, do, how is what they actually wrote down different from what they think they did? How, do, how are they, you know, how is, what is the actual impact of what they're doing? We're trying to focus on that now. And I think also trying to sort out who is like a reliable source on what within, even people who are speaking on the record, who is a reliable source on the Trump administration and what it means to be doing. 
I think in the beginning of this administration, you saw that people, a lot of people quoting people like Newt Gingrich or even Kellyanne Conway, who actually works for the White House, as sources about what the president would do or was considering that turned out to be wrong. Kellyanne Conway has been wrong about a lot of things that the president was supposed to be doing. And so it was interesting to see last weekend, CNN was offered a chance to have Kellyanne Conway on, and they said no because they felt like it, you know, she was not a credible source. Um, I was really surprised by that two weeks into the administration for them to be turning down like an actual White House employee and saying that she wasn't trustworthy. Um, so I think people are trying to get used to that. Um, I don't know, for, um, for us, I feel like the biggest danger in this chaotic environment is that we will harm our own credibility by, by running with stories either on our paper, following, you know, like amplifying them on Twitter, stories about Trump that are not true. Uh, it's hard to know what's true with Trump because his people often are, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The, the spokespeople may not tell you the truth. But, you know, the truth is, what, is all we have, right? People care about us and read us. And there's been some examples where people push stories that later on turn out not to have been fully checked or, you know, not to be true. I mean, unfortunately, one example was in the Post the other day. Uh, one of our opinion columnists wrote a, a story saying that Bannon had gone to Kelly, the, the, so the White House counselor had gone to the Department of Homeland Security secretary and ordered him to uh, apply the ban to green card holders. And that Kelly, according to our story, Kelly had said, you know, you're not my boss, basically. You know, you're not my chain of command. I'm going to do it my way. We're not going to apply it to green card holders. Really dramatic story, really interesting. Um, but it turned out later that our columnist hadn't done all the, hadn't, basically hadn't called the White House, hadn't checked this out fully. And so now we've sort of like half taken it down and put up some editor's notes and other things on it. Things like that, um, or like there was a story that a Fox News station in Detroit did about a, a person who, like a guy in Detroit whose mother was in Iraq and she was going to come to the U.S., but she died because of the, it turned out not to be true either. So there's a real danger that we're going to, in the, in the sort of like rush to get things right and to make sense of this really chaotic environment, that we're going to do things that people will, unfortunately, people might forget that Trump tells them something that wasn't true, but they'll remember that we told them something that wasn't true. So I think we have to be really careful about like, being even more conservative about what we, what we say is true now um, than we have before, just because our credit, we're, we're gaining a big new audience, but also like those people are watching us to see if we're any better than you know Patriot News Network or whatever thing they've been reading on Facebook. And if we get it wrong, then how can we say we are? You know what I mean? Hi, I'm uh, Jill Abramson. I uh, teach journalism in the English department here. Um, I guess, you know, looking at the coverage overall in the campaign, it struck me that the investigative journalism by the Post, by you, by the New York Times, even, you know, the Wall Street Journal had some <coughs> hits too. I mean, I would say it's the best investigative reporting I've seen in a presidential campaign. Other coverage, you know, obviously had some flaws, but, you know, what's, so that's something to celebrate, but it's discouraging that somehow it seemed to go into this broader din of coverage. And, you know, how did you try to measure the impact of your foundation stories and do you share any of my worry that you know it just got swallowed up in just massive media coverage um yes i, I do worry about that uh to to me here's what was different i'll be interested in hearing your your thoughts about this too 
that we had come, as political journalists had come to rely on a couple of like rituals that would happen after you broke a big investigative story. I mean, think about like the 47% story from um, 2012 or our story about Romney abusing the, um, another kid who was gay at his high school. Like something like that happens. And usually this, the ritual is the person who is, it's about will show you how shameful it is by how they react to it. So they'll, they'll minimize it, try to deny it, they'll finally admit it, then they'll apologize and they'll maybe apologize again. All those things were like new news cycles. You know, that's how you would tell something was bad. We would spend successive news cycles talking about this thing. And you as a viewer or you as a reader would be like, oh, wow, this must be bad. Um, think about how Hillary Clinton handled the email thing and how many iterations of like, oh, it was allowed. It wasn't a big deal. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. No, I'm really sorry. I, you know, <laughs> like that was how, that's how people used to react to scandal. And Trump was like, um, you know, every day was a new scandal. So he, you know, we, we, everybody got fired up about him saying something bad about John McCain. The next day when everyone's getting spun up to cover that, he'd say something else that seemed outrageous. He would never stop and apologize. Um, and so we had to, I think TV and especially got better at um, dealing with that stuff as the, uh, sorry, as the, uh, as time went on. But, um, but it's, I think you have to, then you started seeing like CNN putting like fact checks in their chirons where like Trump says X, that's wrong. Um, <laughs> but like, I think people like that, that we still were attached to that ritual that like, the way that you knew something was bad was that it dominated the news cycle again and again and again. And also that the opponents would use that bad thing against, you know, against the, the person who'd done the wrong thing. And Trump's opponents and Hillary Clinton particularly, in, in, they, had, they shared a common strategy of trying to be like, Trump is really outrageous. He's an outrageous person who outrage, you know, he's gone beyond these norms. And it was rarely like a substance, it was not the same substance of criticism day after day. I mean, just my little piece of it, the, tr the, the giant portrait Trump bought of himself. Obama talked about that once. Clinton talked about that at a debate. But it wasn't like it was something they hammered on every day. And so you're dependent on somebody keeping these things in the news cycle to make them a bigger deal. Um, that's, I think that's part of it. Um, but also, I was trying to think of last year, if that's not going to happen, you know, how do I get out? when I'm, you know, when I've done? How do I reach an audience that I don't normally reach? So that was social media, obviously, but I, I really tried to get on, like, conservative radio shows. I tried to get on Fox News. I tried to get on all these different TV networks to talk about and do podcasts and talk about what I was doing. And I think that really helped. I mean, obviously, a lot of other things happened in the election. But that was what, I feel like you have to be, at the end of the election especially, I was like, well, can I, you know, is two weeks left before the election, can I, should I bust my butt trying to find a new Trump Foundation story to break? Or, you know, take the risk that I won't find anything in the right time frame? Or should I spend this time trying to tell people about the things that I've already done and sort of explain the bigger narrative that I've done? So I tried, I tried to do that. I mean, everyone was distracted by the Comey letter, but that was, like, I'm trying to do that now to, you know, find ways to talk about what I'm doing and to remind people that it happened, tell people about it for the first time. Can I egg you on to share with this group the wonderful backstory to how you found the portrait? Oh, yes. Um, so I talked about how Trump had used the, the money from his foundation to buy a Tim Tebow helmet earlier. Another thing that I found was that he used it to buy portraits of himself. Uh, <laughs> you have to sort of understand the world that he lives in. He owns a place in Palm Beach where there's a lot of charity events. And so the charities are his clients. They pay him lots of money, like $275,000 a night to rent out his club for their big ch charity galas. And so every one of these things has some cheesy entertainment and is often an auction. And so, so Trump goes to these things. People have realized that if you paint a picture of Donald Trump, he has to buy it. Like, no, like you know, he, he'll be forced to buy it. No one else will buy it. And, and so, um, 
So there, there were two examples of this. One, he, a, a six-foot-tall portrait of himself he bought for $20,000, and another, a four-foot-tall portrait of himself he bought for $10,000. The six-foot-tall portrait, this is a little longer story than you asked for, but it's funny. Uh, <laughs> we, we couldn't get the rights to show a picture of it. We had a guy who had a picture of it, but he wouldn't give us the rights to publish it. So I was trying to find the six-foot-tall portrait of him somewhere in the world, and I put it into Google image search. So all I had was this picture of Trump's face, and I put it into Google image search thinking, oh, you know, maybe it'll show up in the background of some image somebody, someplace. And I hit return, and it says, I think you're looking for an orange. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And there's all these pictures of oranges. Uh, orange, you know. But thankfully... The second, the second portrait, we actually got the artist to give us a picture of it. So we knew now what that picture looked like. So I put that out on Twitter um, one day at about 10.30 in the morning. Here's this picture Trump bought of himself, $10,000 in charity money. I need to know where it is, all right? Because the law says that if you buy something like that, it has to be used for charitable purposes. So I need to, like, it's hard to imagine what charitable purposes could be serving, but maybe it's in a children's hospital someplace or something. Like, you know, I don't know where it is. So Trump people wouldn't tell me. I need to know where in the world this thing is. And now imagine that in the days before social media, right? How in the world, I could go to, I mean, Trump has some properties that are public. I could go to all of them and search all the nooks and crannies. Maybe I'd find it, maybe not, it would take forever. So I just put out, put out this picture on, on Twitter saying, does anybody know where this is? Here's what I'm looking for. So uh, talking about not even knowing how to begin a search like this, there was a woman in Atlanta, Allison Aguilar. I've never met her. She's a, a stay-at-home mom and a writer, who's a, a follower of mine on Twitter. She looks at this picture, decides that it's ugly, and that Trump would not keep it in his house. And uh, so she thinks he must keep it at one of his resorts. And so she um, goes to TripAdvisor, you know, where you can, um, you can upload pictures of, like, you know, the hotel buffet or your bathroom or whatever. You know, users can upload pictures of their accommodations. And she sees that um, Trump owns a golf course outside Dur uh, Miami called Doral that has a resort. So there's, there's 500 user-generated photos of various parts of this resort on TripAdvisor. And she's going through them 20 at a time. Uh, trying to find this portrait. And she finds it like 300 photos in, she finds this picture of the portrait. Um, and uh, the, the date on that portrait is from February 2016. So now, wow, okay, we know where it was in February 2016. We don't necessarily know where it is. Um, and I should say that hanging on the wall of your, the sports bar at your resort is definitely not allowed. That's <laughs> not a charitable use. So, okay, now I know where it is. I'm in D.C., and it's like at 6 p.m. that she tells us about this. And I... Tweet that out again. Okay, now we know it was a Doral. And another guy in, in Florida, a, a Univision journalist named Enrique Acevedo, who is the, he's the anchor for Univision's national Spanish language newscast between 1130 and midnight. He realizes, sees this on Twitter, he realizes that Doral is like four blocks from their studios in Miami. And he makes a reservation. He makes it with points so he doesn't have to give Trump any of his money. He makes it with points. <laughs> he makes a reservation. And uh, that night, after his newscast is over at midnight, he goes to Doral, checks in, and starts wandering the halls and, and talking to the cleaning crew. And they let him into the sports bar where he sees that this thing is still on the wall. So that's like 1230 at night. So we went from not knowing where in the world it was at 10 o'clock in the morning, 14 hours later, we know exactly where it is on the wall, breaking the law. Um, that's like, you just could never have... You, never, you could never have done that in the old days. Uh, and it was ama an amazing... I often wonder if the guy who found it was not a journalist himself. Like, if it, if it was just somebody that I didn't know saying, yes, I found it. Like, would I have had to go down there? Or would we have sent a stringer or somebody to, to, to go look at it before I ran with it? Uh, but because it happened to be that the guy who found it was another journalist, like, you know, we, we ran with it that day. Um, so that was just an amazing... 
experience of like what I got out of social media with really, you know, I there, I was always aware that people were going to try to might try to hoax me on those sorts of things, but it never happened or something like this. Yeah. Hi, I'm Neil Thomas. I'm also a student at the Kennedy School. Uh, thanks for sharing your stories behind your reporting of the Trump Foundation. I'm just wondering if you can maybe give us a sense of this beat, because I mean, there's a lot of politicians and prominent figures that have a whole range of foundations which could be up to all sorts of nefarious things, or they could not be. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how well that's covered across political journalism. Not very well, I think, and it could be covered better. I mean, it just. Um this year, Betsy DeVos, the education nominee uh, for Trump, that she's been involved in. The, uh, no, oh, no, confirmed. Oh, right. So historically confirmed uh, education secretary. Um, she had, was involved in some foundation she claimed not to even be part of. The great thing about foundations is there's a paper trail. I mean, in, in, in Trump's case, he actually, re it's funny, personal taxes, obviously, he's never released them. His foundation, for some reason, stupidly, it did a lot of stupid things, but it stupidly released more information than it had to. It doesn't, by law, you don't have to, you have to tell the IRS who your donors are, the money coming in, but you don't have to tell the public who your donors are. And he did, for some reason. And so we now, we know more about him and his foundation than we would otherwise would have. But in general, these things produce paper trails, and so it's much easier to understand what they're doing, how they raise money, who they give money to. Um, so I think they're like very, a very ripe subject. Um, and uh, people should use them more. And I think often they're often abused by, by ch politicians who see them as I think Trump did. It's basically another one of their, you know, another part of their own wallet. You know, I think Trump viewed it as like, well, if I'm going to give money to a charity, I'm going to use my charity to, you know, which is totally not the way the law works. But I think a lot of other people see it that way too. Okay, last question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jean-Louis Rocher. I'm a second year student here at the Kennedy School. Um, I'm interested in following up on uh, Professor Abramson's question about when reporting gets lost um, and shuffle. I'm interested when, when you go to these conservative uh, talk shows, when you actually present uh, your findings, what's the reaction that that elicits? Is it sort of a shrug and, um, you know, if it's a cynical response, how do you start to break through that? Well, it's interesting. On when I would actually get on the air on Fox or on um, a couple of conservative talk shows that I did, Generally, the reaction was very respectful. Like I, I expected people to sort of come at me and say it wasn't a big deal. Or what about the Clinton Foundation, which they sort of did. And, I mean, in the Clinton Foundation, there were a lot, a lot of legitimate questions you could ask about it. There were, it just is a very different animal. Um, but usually, it was like this is great, but nobody's going to pay attention. You know, they were sort of conceding in their questions that it was not top of mind for people. Which again is fine. I mean, the political campaign is really complicated. I'm not, I didn't ever expect that my stuff would be the most important thing. Um, but that was generally their reaction. Okay, my last question is what's uh, what's next? So I'm part of a team, I'm really excited about this, I'm part of a team that's going to be covering Trump's conflicts of interest and his business empire. Um, so we've sort of divided it up. Um, I managed to maneuver my colleagues out of the, into letting me cover um, all the golf courses, which are all in really nice places. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Eric Trump, Mar-a-Lago, and the Trump winery is my particular piece, but we've also been covering like a lot of... Um, Merchandising questions. Just last night, our team wrote a story about how Melania Trump now says in a lawsuit that she plans to sell a line of apparel and fragrances based on her identity as first lady. Um, so um, that's really exciting. We are. It's such. It's such a new beat that I feel like we're now just trying to master all the inputs. Like where you even look for this stuff to break. Like it's not. You know, some of it's going to be like government regulation of his businesses, tax breaks for his business, some of the legislation that he might support that helps his businesses, but also there's all kinds of other places where this kind of news could bubble out that we're still just tr starting to map. 
Um, but it's, it's exciting. I'm really glad to be part of it. David, thank you so much. This is not exactly... Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.